Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy. This is the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to the singer-songwriter Grace Petrie. So firstly I hope you're well. The nights are drawing in, it's uh, starting to, to feel like that time of year isn't it and um, I've been doing quite a lot of stuff in preparation for January so for me it's kind of like get through the end of the year ready to start a new one really. Uh, January is the launch of the fifth anniversary edition of Productivity Ninja which also means it's it's coming up to five years to the day. I think it's the 3rd of January uh, five years ago that Productivity Ninja first came out with Icon Books and I had big displays in WH Smiths and all that kind of stuff and it just feels like yesterday. It's just mad that that's five years ago but we're doing a kind of updated edition which you may have heard me talk about on this podcast before. Um, it's already up on Amazon, so you can go and, and pre-order it um, just on Amazon. Just put in Productivity Ninja. The one you want is the one that says Revised and Updated, and it has a green cover. So go and do that on Amazon. Uh, we'd love your support and pre-ordering to get it up the Amazon rankings when it first comes out. That would be lovely. Please go and do that. Um, so, yeah, nice drawing in. And um, part of that preparation for January for me is doing publicity. So I'm kind of working on a couple of pieces for different magazines and newspapers, uh, tips and tricks and that kind of stuff. So that we've got a whole load of stuff just going into the media around that time. Just got this big list of requests from my publicist and uh, lots to do. So that's where my head's at over the next few weeks. And we've also just pressed send on another book, which is Work Fuel, The Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition, which I've been writing with Colette Hennigan. And um, yeah, Colette, we will get on this podcast, by the way, at some point, we'll have her do a whole hour talking about productivity um, through nutrition and the ways to eat well to have better energy. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. And um, obviously, we've written a whole book about it, which will you're very welcome to use as your primary way to get all of those tips and tricks. But it'd be nice to just put it in a podcast and make it easy for you guys as well. So we will make sure that we do that as well uh, around the launch of that, which is in March. So let's get on to this week's episode. This is Grace Petrie. Um, just a real honour to have Grace on the podcast. One of my favourite singer-songwriters. And I, actually, I just think one of the best singer-songwriters in the UK right now. You're going to hear um, her talk particularly about her new album. We talk a lot, a lot about acceptance. We talk about the, the joys of touring solo and just where perhaps the glamour of life as a musician doesn't quite meet the reality sometimes. Uh, Grace is super honest and just has loads of really interesting insights into what it's like to be in the music industry in 2018 and doing it all on her own and doing it on her own terms. So uh, really interesting conversation. We were, She was actually in Brighton to do a gig at Comedia. Uh, the gig was sold out and um, it's part of a, a whole national tour, many of uh, the dates of which have been sold out as well. So um, she's really had a, a bit of a meteoric rise this year and is part of a really interesting scene uh, on the kind of left politics thing, um, hangs out a lot with people like Robin Ince and Josie Long and the Guilty Feminist podcast people and, and probably lots of those kind of people who uh, you may well have come across as well. So Really interesting conversation, this. So let's go straight into it. This is my conversation with Grace Petrie. So I'm with Grace Petrie. We're in Brighton. We're in Brighton. Welcome yes. to We're Brighton. We're upstairs yeah. in the, um, the office full of comedia workers. We've just both walk, walked through here and seen, like, what, 10 people all tapping away on keyboards. Yeah, yeah um, and they're and really, like... If you don't know Brighton and don't know Comedia, so it's a kind of arts venue. It has a little cinema. It has two or three performance spaces and yeah. stuff. But I think we've both been just quite flummoxed by how many people there are. And just how, like, like, seriously on it they and are. The, and they're really on it yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I felt then, like I was walking through the newsroom at, like, the I Daily know, Planet right? or something. Yeah, it's got a very serious vibe. But also then, when you think about it, they've got to book all the films and they've got to do all that stuff. And yeah. There's, there's a lot to do. Sure. Right. Sell out Grace Petrie gigs. That's yeah, what they need to do. <laughs> for sure. So you are sold out tonight. Sold out um, tonight, and yeah. And you're here tonight because you're on tour. I'm on tour, yeah. Um, you said that with a tour. slightly weary... <laughs> I've been on tour. I can't remember a time I wasn't on tour. Yeah. I've been on tour for the whole month of October. It is now the 25th of October. <laughs> um, and I've got another five shows before the end of the week. It's Thursday. Um, You've got five shows before the end of the week? Two on Sunday. Right, yeah, okay. Matinee yeah. and an evening show. Um, and many miles to travel before yeah. <laughs> before the end of the week as well. 
Um, so yeah, good, very good. It's been a great tour. It's been a very good tour. I'm just a little bit. I am at that point where um, I'm completely like I reached a point of like functioning tired, and then today <laughs> I was in like a I was in um, is it called Snoopers Attic? You know Snoopers that place? Paradise. Snoopers Paradise. Yeah. That kind of sort of half vintage, half junk shop in Brighton <laughs> that's over like three floors and a million rooms, just full of loads and loads and loads of kind of. Um, secondhand stuff, and um, it's like a museum to society. In there, right, isn't it? like okay. you get everything from like Kellogg's old milk bottle adverts through yeah. to like weird snuff tins and just, sure, like, yeah. just random stuff. Yeah, and there. then it's like coin collections. It's and a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah, and I was. Um, they had a skeleton up. <laughs> you never really know in that shop whether or not that was anything to do with Halloween or if it's just always been there. Probably always. Um, yeah, and I was standing there and this man walked past me and I was he just burst out laughing because I was standing on my own and I appeared to be shaking hands with this skeleton <laughs> um, which I wasn't I was trying to see if its limbs moved um, but I think I am that's that's where I'm at tour wise I'm at the point that I'm I'm <laughs> liable to be found in shops holding the hands of skeletons was it a little bit of a kind of allegory of kind of grace meet what happens if you're on tour for yeah, three of. months or yeah, something yeah before and like after yeah. yeah it's like this yeah. is where you're going to be if you attempt this many dates in a short space of time next year um, yeah. so just describe tour life then so obviously there's like a huge tour bus filled with like just brown <laughs> M&M's and stuff like that like, exactly uh, yeah what exactly. does it look like for you <laughs> <laughs> what it looks like for me currently is that I am um, I've borrowed my girlfriend's car for this tour because yeah. it's more reliable than my car <laughs> and a caveat to that sentence is the last three days um, the uh, the button to unlock the car has stopped working <laughs> and every time you use the key in the door to unlock it it sets off the alarm so uh, that's what I've been doing for the last three days every time I've gone to get in the car I've had to brace myself for a good sort of six seconds of the alarm going off before I can disable <laughs> it um, so I'm pretty sure that's far from a tour bus full of brown M&M's yeah. as you could possibly get um, and yeah I travel I tour on my own so, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of it's been a lot of my own company <laughs> this month. And so that um, means you're doing all the driving as well. All the driving, yeah. Uh, yeah. For the first time, I've, I have actually got somebody who's been selling merch for me this time, which has been really helpful because I've got a new record out. So I sort of underestimated the demand a little bit, which is good. Of course, it's nice to sell a lot of merch. Um, but we, he's just based in London, so he's just kind of been making his way to the gigs. So most yeah. of the driving I'm doing has been on my Todd yeah so it's funny it's a funny thing um, it, this has been my longest tour and I think that um, it's definitely uh, I've gone a bit stir crazy with my own company I think because <laughs> it's just bizarre it's such a bizarre way like I can't tell you how completely strange it is being a solo artist because yeah, it's kind yeah. of you know 20 like 20 hours of the day you're completely on your own <laughs> yeah and then the time you are with people those people have a completely inflated sense of you know they're they're fans to put it yeah. crudely and they have a totally inflated sense of sort of how good you are you know um so you have this sort of artificial rush of attention and endorphins and social time which is like a room full of people telling you you're great and thinking you're great and it's such a massive high and then it's all over and you're back in a travel lodge on your own <laughs> for another yeah, 20 hours. Yeah, yeah. Which so. I actually had, um, I went to this thing um, the other week actually here in Comedia and it was called Guitars Save Lives and it was about a, a guitar group that was getting people who were addicts together and then right. they were playing music mm -hmm. and they had as part of that event, they had one of the guys who was he was the guitarist in Sleeper. Do you remember the Britpop band? Yeah, Sleeper? I love Sleeper. And he was sort of describing exactly that. Mm -hmm. But of course he's describing it in a sense where he's got his three mates around him. Sure. That at the end of the night, they'll yeah. go back to the hotel and you know, everyone will be giving them beer and everything else. Um, yeah. He was kind of using it as a way to say it's no wonder a lot of musicians kind of get into a lot of alcohol and drugs because yeah. you kind of need something to kind of regulate those massive adrenaline Absolutely. sort of high. So how do you do that when you're on your own then? So what's the <laughs> what's the way of regula regulating that? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've kind of enforced a no alcohol rule on this tour. 
um, because um, apart from anything else, since I turned 30, all of the horror stories I heard about hangovers <laughs> after you're 30 are true. And, and it takes me two and a half days now to recover from a hangover, so I just don't have that amount of time. Um, and I've, yeah, I haven't really drunk on this tour apart from um, I did my hometown show in Leicester, which was the biggest venue of the tour. And it's the biggest venue I've ever played in Leicester. And I've, I'm, I'm born and raised Leicester. So that was a really nice, you know, I had loads of friends there and loads cool. of family yeah. there. So inevitably ended up getting quite pissed that night. But other than that, I've been pretty good. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, it's good that I, my partner is a, is a musician as well. And I think that that really makes a lot of difference to me. I find that a very like, um, like a, calibrating okay, influence yeah. on me because um, she knows exactly what it's like as well. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's not really, um, she doesn't really have any kind of um, uh, misconceptions about how amazing tour life is. And she also doesn't have any sort of like, you know, bitterness or jealousy about, you know, me getting off to go and do this amazing thing, you know, because she does it as well. Yeah, she kind of right. knows that actually yeah. like, it's a very strange, I mean, I really don't want to seem like I'm just complaining about the whole thing because obviously it's what I always wanted to do. And But I think she really gets the fact that I even just felt the need to sort of um, qualify what I'm saying to you by saying, I am actually really grateful. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. sort of what me and Hannah don't have to do when yeah, we talk to each sure. other is we can just be like, God, I'm knackered or like, yeah. God, that gig was quite yeah. hard or like, God, you know, that person was a bit annoying in that show tonight and and without constantly having to be like, but I'm so grateful that I get to do this. I'm so great, you know, because yeah, I, I am sure. really aware that we, you know, I'm very lucky that I get to do this and I think a lot of people do, you know, they want to achieve a point where they can make a living from music and that is kind of increasingly... Um, I don't know, rare or hard or whatever. So I think it's, um, but I do think that it kind of instills in you this like <laughs> ridiculous superstition that you can't ever sort of complain about <laughs> or like can't ever like think badly of it or can't yeah, ever just like yeah, verbalize that actually, you know, like sure it's a dream job, but also it's a job and like yeah, some parts yeah. of it are really shit and <laughs> some parts of it are really tiring and um, other parts of it are incredible and amazing. And uh, like all things, you know, it's life. Yeah. And so that whole thing of, because the other thing about being a musician, you know, and any kind of performance is that sometimes you come off stage and you're like, was that okay? Mm. And then other times you come off going, that was incredible. I, sure. I love that so much. And Definitely. I want to spend the rest of my life with these people in this room. Definitely. It's incredible. Yeah. So again, if you're in a band, you've got people to talk to. So is that a case of kind of texting and kind of you, ha you have that with your partner to kind of be that almost mm. like moral support or kind of... Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, and again, just because I think it's very, um, it's, it's, I think it, people who sort of are outside of the performing arts or whatever have a tendency and I understand and it comes from a very, very nice place and it's a very nice thing. But I think have an inclination to kind of want to say, if I ever say like, oh, you know, I was shit last night, you know, um, if I say that to like my friends or, you know, um, or anyone who kind of doesn't do a performance job, I think people have a sort of inclination to want to be like, I'm sure you weren't, I'm sure, I'm sure you were brilliant. And Hannah sort of doesn't do that. She <laughs> has nights that she comes off and she feels like she was shit and, and it just is what it is, you know what I mean? It's like, as I say, like there's so many things about it that um, in many ways, it's not like any other job in the world. And in so many ways, it's just like any other job in the world. You yeah. have days that you'll do it better than other days. You know, you'll have days that you won't do it very well. You know, things will, um, put you off or get in your head or you'll be tired or you'll be you know have PMS or you know etc etc and on and on yeah um, so yeah I talked I mean we talk a lot on the road as well because um, she's yeah she's on the road as much as I am so we, most of our relationship is conducted via the old iPhone <laughs> via, via the media of, of text messages and sure and, and you know FaceTime yeah. and, yeah. and all the rest of that so yeah um, how long have you been a sort of full-time, so you talk about being a musician and that's your job. How long has that been the case? How, how long have you been a full-time musician? Um, I guess it's coming on for seven years now. Mm. Yeah. Um, full-time, which is, which is like, yeah, still, that's in many ways that's flying by and in yeah. many ways it's yeah. felt like a very long road. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
I gave it up in I went on tour with um, your previous podcast ge- uh, guest Josie Long yeah went on tour with her um, in 2012 and I was on tour with her for three months and I'd taken I what I'd done was I'd taken unpaid leave from work because I didn't have enough like a holiday to take three months off um, and the idea was that I was going to go back to work and then I ended up going back for like one day and just realising that <laughs> I, I had to had to go and give music a shot you know yeah, had to nice. because and it wasn't it wasn't at all that I hated my job I mean I think if I'd have done something that I didn't really love I would have left it a long time before I did but I was I was an LGBT youth worker okay. which I loved yeah. to death and um, the you know the charity I was working I was living in Sheffield at the time charity I was working for was so supportive and great and um, so supportive of my my music career as well so but it was just it was just a case of realising that I would I was never going to have a better opportunity than touring with JC had afforded me you know because I'd just done three months of sold out shows playing to I mean her crowd of like very much there's a lot of overlap between yeah. her audience and my yeah. audience so that's actually how I discovered you was through Jason oh really yeah. oh cool yeah mm. I think that's true of a lot of people actually so I just you know it just seemed like it was now or never really so mm. that's so I took the plunge then and um and Josie actually said to me and this is uh, this is advice that I repeat to anybody who is ever going self-employed she said to me, the first year is going to be really scary and you'll have times that you'll think, oh, I don't know like where the rent's coming from next month. And then she said, like almost imperceptibly, it'll get to the point where you're like, okay, so the rent for this month's cool, the rent for next month's cool. I need to think about the rent in, in three months' time and then imperceptibly that'll turn into six months' time and then imperceptibly that'll turn into a year. And um, I was so sceptical <laughs> talking to her, <laughs> uh, like taking that advice from her. I was like, I'm not sure that that's how it's going to work for me. I think I'm going to be back, back at work in three weeks. But that is exactly how yeah, it went. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because, you know, that's just, uh, I think it's probably like not dissimilar of any, any kind of self-employment, I think. You know, you kind of panic at first because you've come from this world where somebody gives you gives you an amount of money every month yeah. and pretty much come rain or shine you know if nothing bad happens then you can rely on that and they look after you right so if you're sick then you get yeah. sick pay and yeah. you know there's, there's all those kind of benefits and it kind of feels like that safety net Definitely. drops away when you go self-employed but yeah I mean it's I've had a good year this year um, It's it's been I had this sort of new record out this year which has kind of been like an, an attempt at going a little bit more uh, mainstream, yeah. to, if that's the right word, um, which I think has been pr- pretty successful. Um, I mean, there's a lot. There seems to be a lot more people at my gigs this tour than there have been before, and a lot of people who who are new to me as well. So, um, it and it feels like so. I had a couple of sort of points that I wondered whether they were sort of big things for you. So, like, um, farewell to welfare. Mm. That for me felt like a really important moment for you as a kind of breakthrough sure. thing yeah. and that establishment of you writing politically as well. Mm, um, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, way back about? when. Well, because yeah. I wrote that song in 2010, Fair Welfare, and um, definitely I think that established me um, almost unwittingly as a protest singer, which yeah. is not a term that I'd ever heard <clears> before. And it's not a term that you'd heard before? Not really, no. Really? Yeah, wow, okay. not really. Still not really That's a term that I particularly know what it means. Yeah. It's not a term that I like. Yeah. Um, it's a term that I have sort of grudgingly come to accept that I'm stuck with. Um, and is probably more applicable to me than like folk singer or singer-songwriter, etc., etc. But I just think that it's... Um, well, there's a sort of Venn diagram of things, aren't there? You can, be all, so. you can have all of those yeah. labels within the same thing. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, but anyway, I, I hadn't written about politics before. And then when the government changed in 2010, I wrote the song as a sort of like knee-jerk reaction to the Tories getting in and, and this like quite sudden like axe falling of austerity that seemed to sort of take hold really really quickly and um and then you know Theresa May way back when she was um Home Secretary back in 2010 and she was um Minister for Women and Equalities and that was a big um turning point for me I suppose 
in terms of my like I mean I've always had the same sort of ideology I suppose I've always been quite left wing my family are quite left wing and I was brought up I suppose to be fairly left wing but I think that it, politics was a bit of an abstract idea for me, to be honest. I mean, like, I voted and stuff, but yeah, it wasn't yeah. something that was, like, massively central to my life. And then when Theresa May was had that role of, of equalities minister, I realised that, you know, this person who had used her platform at every single juncture to sort of deny or, like, impede the rights of LGBT people... Mm was now in charge of my liberties as a gay person. And that was a really, like, that was a wake-up call, you know. Um, so I wrote I wrote Farewell to Welfare um, off the back of that. And then I played it at Glastonbury um, in 2010. And um, that was it. It kind of went, it just went bonkers from there, you know. Every, and everybody was coming up to me and, and calling me a protest singer. And that, I, as I say, wasn't something that I particularly... <laughs> like, oh, okay then. Yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> And then, yeah, and then it sort of, it just kind of became really kind of self-feeding um, and self-fulfilling because the more I sang about politics, the more people would come up to me and talk to me about politics and the more people would send me, um, you know, articles or, or like things about, you know, various campaigns that were going on or various injustices that were happening um, and kind of wanting to bring things to my attention. So the more I... The more I wrote about it, the more I got involved about it, the more I got involved in it, the more I wrote about it. Until I ended up where I am now, which is it's a it's a, a lifelong affliction, I think, <laughs> that I show no signs of being cured from. I wonder Should've. if what would ever happen if you suddenly woke up one day and you're like, actually I'm really centrist. <laughs> or like or actually I think I'm a Tory. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> Maybe that'll happen. That's what they say, isn't it? The older you get. Maybe in 15 years I'll be like, hey kids, let me talk to you about the Conservative Party. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. Um, it's funny, people always say to me like, oh, what, what are you going to do if like a Corbyn Labour Party wins the next election? Like as if, <laughs> as if I would be like, yeah, I must stop that from happening. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think... Um, or as if there would just politics would stop and there'd be nothing to write about. Sure, Because it yeah. would still be stuff to yeah. talk about and write about. And yeah, stuff. I, think, I think I'm safe from the world ever just achieving complete yeah. utopian yeah. equality. <laughs> um, um, on the protest singer theme, so you have this song called I Wish the Guardian Believed That I Exist. I do, yes. Um, so um, just talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, so the Guardian... Um, are, are, are in quite, quite firmly entrenched in this quite bad habit of um, employing a journalist who is who's and it's and it's always to be honest it, it's generally someone whose heyday was the eighties um, and whose whose like youth and golden days were in the eighties and they'll write these articles about just bemoaning how. Um, there's no good political music anymore and there's no good political art anymore um, and it's with this it's, it's often with these overtones of like look at everything bad that's happening why aren't the kids getting involved why aren't the kids out on the picket lines where's the new Billy Bragg yeah. um, and I just in the end I just had enough of it because you know my experience has been until this year um, I've operated completely outside of the music industry and that wasn't by choice a lot of people um, there's a misnomer I think that I decided I was going to go the DIY route for sort of punk left wing polit political reasons that isn't true I just I've never had any interest for the music industry at all um, and I'm not saying that's because what I do is political but I can say that you know in the course of my career I've had local BBC radio stations um, ask me not to sing anything too political hmm, you know right. I've been, even when I've been on the Now show um, on Radio 4 uh, I've had songs um, rejected for being imbalanced you know and, and, and asked to write things that are a little bit more balanced you know whatever that means when that's I mean it's not like that's a news program that's satire you would have thought yeah, you would be able yeah. to you know take a shot at the government without having to write a verse about Labour as well <laughs> um and I think that, you know, the reality is the structures have, have changed and we have to look at why that is. I mean, it is true that in the 80s, you know, you had 
um, Billy Bragg and, and the Jam and the specials in the charts and, you know, in the top 10. And it is true that it used to be the case that Smash Hits magazine would ask like the pop stars of the day who they were going to vote for. And I, it is true that I think that doesn't happen now. That is not the same thing as saying that there are no political artists. Mm. Those, the, the political artists are everywhere. They are everywhere. But it is absolutely true that a generation of people my age and then younger than me as well, who've grown up with austerity, who've grown up with this horrible backlash to any kind of social progression we've made regarding misogyny and homophobia and transphobia and what we're seeing now you know the, the horrific backlash we're having to that obviously out of that music, political music and political art has sprung from that but it's not being put on the radio it's not being put in the Guardian you know yeah. um, if, if do you think the mainstream has got more uh, sort of homogenised and kind of more mainstreamed in a way like kind of feel like because everybody consumes music on Spotify and mm. you know shares stuff online and kind of shares yeah. stuff with it. Everyone's in bubbles and sharing stuff within bubbles, right? So mm. there is just less of a mainstream experience happening as well. I think so. Like Christmas number one used to be when we were kids, like just such a huge thing. Definitely, yeah. It was going to be Christmas, Christmas number one, and maybe Simon Cowell ruined it, but it feels like now mm. no one even really cares that much. No, oh, sure. so it's Christmas number one, fine. Yeah. It's kind of. Well, um, shifted a bit. The, the chart itself is just not the institution that it yeah, needs to be. Sure. But to my mind, I think that's why I think the, that's why I think these articles are just a bit weak when they turn mm. around and say, "Well, in my day, we had five political yeah. bands in the top ten. But it's like, but the top ten doesn't really mean anything anymore. Mm. <laughs> is is the first thing to say? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like you sure. can't apply. 40-year-old tactics to modern-day politics or modern-day mm. music industry, which has changed beyond recognition. Yeah. Um, and to my mind, I think it's good that it's changed beyond recognition because I can tell you that I, I would never have the career that I have today if I had been somebody who was born, I don't know, 15 years before I was. Um, I, don't, I don't even know if, if I would be able to do the same thing today. I don't know if I'd be able to replicate it. I think I snuck in a, a, a moment where... The internet had happened and there were all of these platforms to publish yourself and and have that be immediately and freely accessible to anyone anywhere in the world. But the industry hadn't sort of kind of, you know, bridled the the, the, the internet yet in the way mm. that I think it kind of has now. Right. Um, you know, so I see a lot of... I think that the expectation is on bands and artists these days to immediately be completely media shiny and media ready and you know anything you put on the internet has got to be of like festival band quality well that's just not realistic because people you know people have to go through a process of starting out I mean I had before I had a website I had a band camp before I had a band camp I had a MySpace and what was on MySpace was of dreadful quality it was just home home recordings um, but it was through that that I was able to get people's attention and people were able to sort of say you know, well, this was recorded in someone's bedroom on a dodgy mic and the sound quality isn't great, but the song's good. Yeah, right. But these days I see so many people kind of going on about the, the packaging that things come in. And I just think... So we've lost know, the, the ethos of the demo tape, right? Yeah, like I think we gone. have lost the ethos yeah. of the demo tape. Or at least the standards for it are yeah. impractically high, you know, because people... Because at the end of the day, all of that stuff costs money. Mm. Um, I mean, I think if we want the music industry to not be utterly um, exclusive to anyone of like a working class background then it ha you have to be able to have a decent crack at it without having hundreds of pounds to make a decent video or to make yeah, it an EPK yeah. um, before you even get any gigs you know because the only way that I've survived all these years you know it's only it's only recent very relatively recently it's only that I've started sort of making money from gigs um I made money from selling CDs for most of my career, you know, and, the, you know, the, the gig was about getting an opportunity to showcase my stuff and then my stuff, people would come and buy CDs and that's what was paying my rent. Um, Some fun uh, rehearsal or sound checking for another, say, thing, another thing that's it sounds very, um, coming through. So. Halloween. <laughs> very uh, seasonal, seasonal um, ghosts of yeah, comedian. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, um, I, it just annoys me. I think that, I don't know why I, I kind of pick on the Guardian specifically in that song because they are like particularly guilty of it but I think you know I, w I wish that 
that you know that article that's written by somebody who was big in the 80s saying basically hey the 80s were better than anything else you know I wish that they would balance that with somebody who's actually making music now you know yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've never been in the Guardian I've never made it into the Guardian the Guardian have never reviewed anything I've done I've sent them all of my records for review that just seems you know. astonishing sure like, yeah it does doesn't it even the new one even the new one, wow. and the new one, I'm not ashamed to tell you, the new one had a press agent. Yeah. Um, which I'm given to understand that if you want to get anywhere near the major outlets for reviews and stuff, you need to have a press agent. Yeah. That's something that I feel, I mean, my press agent is very, very nice. She's done a wonderful job. I would recommend her. But that's something I feel very, very, very conflicted about. Mm. I do, because, you know, we, t we are talking about thousands of pounds. Yeah. Um, basically, um, to put it into the inboxes and the ears of the right people, and I just think that is we are that is elitist. You know, we, we, there's no way around yeah, that. I yeah, think you know, sure. and I, I wouldn't mind if if there wasn't. I think there is this this conception from the outside. I think people think that music is still this quite. Um, meritocratic industry and it it just isn't to be yeah, honest you know yeah. um, I think people think that you get on the radio by being good and you know some A&R man with a cigar comes to your show and, and he says hey you, kid yeah. you're yeah. going to be a star yeah. it's just not what happens yeah. you know at all um, and I think this sounds arrogant but I think I you know I, I sort of know that for, sh for, for sure because mm. I've I have this sort of 12 year career you know, seven years full time, have all of these albums, and and have managed to, um, I've managed to acquire this fan base, which is amazing and supportive and big enough to keep me in business. And for for so many years, so many people have been saying to me, you know, what, what why are you not on the radio? Why yeah, are you not? Yeah. On, why are you not on Jules Holland? Why are you not? In, why are you not in the Guardian? You know, and I. Um, so I sort of feel like it's it's not a case of me being crap basically is what I'm saying you know I don't think it's that I if I was a better musician I think I would get on the radio I think there are ways to get on the radio and you've heard that what's on the radio right so exactly yeah sort of, sure uh, that one. Um, and, it, and it's to, and it's to do with press budgets that's what it's yeah, to do with yeah. and and that's you know I think that's the role that labels have basically these days is what the, you know they do choose someone who is going to be a star and the way they make them a star is that they, they chuck you know, twenty grand at it um, on on getting it onto the right yeah, um, yeah. radio stations and stuff, and that's you know, I'm that's fine. I guess that's the way things are done. I guess that's the way things are done in most industries. I think, as I say, what annoys me or saddens me a bit about music is that is that I think the general public absolutely believe it to be so much more meritocratic than it is mm, yeah. because you know you can you can go a lot further in the music industry by being mediocre and minted than you can by being really good and having no money yeah or having a minted label I mean even, sure. even if you're not minted the labels have the money don't they yeah. to, to, to push people, people but even forward. that it's not like yeah. yeah I mean who you know is very valuable yeah you know? um, didgeridoo coming through the, <laughs> through the wall right now um, let's talk a bit about Queer as Folk. Sure. So the yes. new album. My yes, my my magnum opus. Yeah. <laughs> so firstly, congratulations on it. I just think it's, I mean it's. Thank I love you. it. I think it's an Thanks amazing record. And um, you got a bit of um, sort of pickup from the Guilty Feminist podcast as well, and yeah. like played some of the songs from sure. the album there. Has mm. that kind of led to a whole new? Oh yeah. Bunch of people discovering it. Absolutely. Like, I mean, that, the Guilty Feminist audience is just unbelievable. Um, so so supportive so loyal so big so mm. many of them um, I mean I admit like uh, I, I listened to it my, myself before I was on it but um, I had no idea like how huge the listenership is yeah crikey so when um, that goes out do you just get a stream of Twitter at mentions and stuff yeah, like just the, straight away the first time it went out and what's yeah. funny is um, Deborah Francis White the host of The Guilty Feminist is Australian uh, so she has a huge audience in Australia and New Zealand as well. So the day, the first time I was on it, when it aired in the UK, well, uh, or, you know, it aired the same time everywhere, but um, everyone kind of downloaded it on the same day in the UK and uh, had this great response and loads, like, you know, straight away, like, you know, I don't know, 
300 more Twitter followers like within a couple of hours and loads wow. of lovely yeah. tweets and loads of messages um, and that was great it was like this real boost and then overnight that night <laughs> everyone in Australia woke up and listened to it again yeah, over there yeah. so I had to say I kind of woke up and had all of these Austra- new Australian fans um, yeah but The Guilty Feminist has been amazing yeah mm. and um, and yeah Deborah's really amazing she's been very very supportive of me um, and kind of put me on some really really other good opportunities really good shows she booked me for um the uh, Secret Policeman's podcast, which was an Amnesty uh, Guilty Feminist uh, collaboration in Edinburgh this year. Um, so yeah, that's been really really cool. But yeah, I played played. Um, I kind of debuted the the one I, the, I debuted on the podcast was uh, Black Tie, which was sort of the lead single, I guess, of this record, if there yeah. is such a thing anymore. Um, and that was kind of a song about um, gender identity and queer identity and um, sort of coming to a place of being more comfortable with yourself, who you are, like how you are in whatever way that means. I mean, I kind of wrote it from a sort of gay perspective and I wrote it from a perspective of being quite insecure about being so masculine for so many years because, you know, I had sort of absorbed society's kind of butch phobia that it has you know across all levels and all industries um you know femi- uh, masculine women are really not celebrated in any way and that, I'd, I'd kind of taken that on from quite a young age and carried it with me for quite a few years and then um i think like a lot of things uh as you get older i just sort of kind of figured out that i didn't need to be worried about it and made peace with it so i, I kind of I, I, for me it's quite a personal song and I think when I wrote it, I thought it would just be quite... I thought it might sort of appeal to maybe queer people and queer women, but I didn't think that it would have anything like the reaction it has had. Yeah. Because I think it actually <clears throat> everybody's got some journey towards becoming comfortable with themselves, you know. I think even the, I think even the most privileged person in the world has got a, an unhappy teenager in them somewhere. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That I think totally, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll admit that as a, as a straight white man, it made me cry. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> um, but the And I think, the, so there's that bit at the end where it kind of says, like, everything's going to be fine, you'll be loved. And sure, yeah. just has this, um, and it's the dynamic of the song is kind of you talking to you in year 11 at school, right? Yeah, that's the idea. And, yeah. and so I think, like you say, everyone has something from a part of their life where mm-hmm. you have that dialogue and you kind of look back and you realise that you weren't secure around a certain thing and then now yeah. you feel differently about it and, mm. you know. And, yeah. and also, I, I suppose the other thing that really touched me about it was that like it, it, it did feel like a very personal thing to mm. put in a song. Does that sort of worry you? Do you think twice about releasing that, particularly debuting it on the Guilty Feminist in front of, yeah. however, in front of, but however many million people are going to download that. Sure, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Do you, do you have to think about that in terms of yeah. what, what you put out and, there about um, yourself? Yeah, and you know, the first time I ever sang it on stage um, was in March of this year, and I was like shaking, um, mm. you know, and um, really by the end, you know, really kind of struggling to keep my voice level. Because it is a really... It is a really personal thing, and especially that idea, you know, that line that you that you said, you know, like that, just the idea of going back and talking to my teenage self and saying, you know, you'll be loved one day, you'll be loved, and you'll be in love, and that's fine. And remembering that, like, there was a time that I just believed that to be completely and utterly impossible and out of the question and preposterous. Mm. Um, and to see where I am now, I suppose to not only be comfortable with who I am but to be in some small way, perhaps for some people, for a small number of people, even being that kind of masculine role model that I really wish that I'd had. You know, I think I, like I've said for many years that it would have been a much easier for me as a kid to have, to have seen anyone on stage or on screen who looked like me. Mm. Um, and it's been a really healing thing to sort of write something that is not only addressing that, but also saying, you know, but now, there will be someone out there who can who can look at me and feel yeah, like they're yeah, not alone because yeah. of that. Um, it's in, I think it's the most I'm I'm proudest of it of anything I've ever done. I think it's the most important thing I've 
I've, I've ever written for sure. Um, and we had a lovely, we made a video for it, which was like a, a queer prom yeah. video and, and invited loads of sort of teenage fans and invited them to come and dress in formal wear <laughs> and loads of queer kids came and um, uh, just like absolutely, you know, incredible yeah really emotional like really emotional day and and the the, res the the result the video is just a really beautiful thing that i'm again really proud of um i saw you do a gig recently where you uh got people to rhyme on the chorus <laughs> yeah uh, i think it's sure. probably one of the best rhyme lyrics ever <laughs> i think um, it's the best thing i've ever done yeah, <laughs> which is uh the images that fucked you were a patriarchal structure yeah which yeah is <laughs> Just a genius line. I kind of so. felt like, you know, well, if I never write another song again. <laughs> <laughs> at least I wrote that. At least yeah. they can put that on my Wikipedia page. So you rhyme structure with fuck you. And there's there's something like just really amazing about seeing a room full of people sing along to that. Because it's just Yeah, like... it's been a very empowering experience, I must say. Yeah. yeah. Um, sort of moving on to that, I wanted to talk a little bit just about acceptance as mm. a sort of theme. Because... There's this whole thing about The Guardian mm. and then Black Tie is about acceptance mm. and then you've talked a lot about kind of the music industry and not being accepted by the music industry. Sure. So uh, that just feels like it's a kind of real theme in mm. in your work. And I'm just kind of wondering if that's a very conscious thing that you sort of bring that up and do you tie those things together and, and just how do you think about that? I yeah, I think so. And I think that the other thing, I suppose the other... Um, world that that applies to is, is folk music you know because I've been sort of trying to kind of break into the folk scene in the UK yeah. for a few years and come up against some sort of um, resistance I think because the folk scene I think a lot of people would agree um, that the folk scene in the UK is sort of politically a bit behind the times um, I think it is still quite sexist. I think it's still, well, it's completely white um, mm. and um, leaves a lot to be desired diversity-wise. And I think leaves a lot to be desired in terms of, you know, folk music should be a, a, a radically political force. I really firmly believe that. Otherwise, there's pretty much no point to it. Um, and somewhere along the line, I think the last sort of 20 years, the idea of politics in folk music has kind of dropped out a bit and, you know, I've done a lot of sort of shows in, in folk where, you know, the, the response has just been that I, I've just kind of been described as too abrasive. Hmm. Um, and basically that's, I think, for talking about politics and talking about the idea that, you know, it's okay to sing a, a song about the Peasants' Revolt, but if you mention the austerity that is being caused by perhaps some of this audience voting Conservative or voting Brexit, mm. then, you know, that's a bit close to home and actually we don't actually want to think about that. Um, but I think that, you know, turning turning 30 was a big... Uh, I turned 30 last summer, I'm 31 now. But turning 30 was a, a really sort of self-accepting thing for me, you know, and I think that... Uh, met you know, my partner that I'm very, very happy with. And um, I think that I sort of, I know what I'm doing now. And for years and years, you know, I did support act. I, I was a support act for so many other people. and got some really amazing opportunities out of it. But supporting people is a tough gig because you're always trying to convince people who haven't basically paid Yeah, that's all about acceptance, isn't it? That's Absolutely. all about like someone Absolutely. else's crowd saying... Exactly, you know. for sure. And I think that um, you sort of, as a woman anyway... And as a gay woman, um, coming into a, a sort of like overly male industry like music is, um, I think you kind of start from the back foot anyway of, in terms of self-confidence. So I think that, you know, I have reached a point where I, I know what I'm doing and I have confidence in what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm a little bit more... Um, I'm happy with the space that I'm holding and I feel like I have earned it and I deserve it and um, yeah I've come to accept a lot of things about myself that I was very insecure about when I was younger but I've also come to accept that you know I've, I've carved out this this sort of niche for myself yeah. in this industry and um, and I'm really happy with it and, and a big thing for me is accepting that not everyone is going to like it not everyone's going to like me that's a big thing that it took me a long time to accept and I, I swear if any advice I would have to any like young 
performer of any kind is just to say to them like not everyone's going to like you you know that's the hardest thing you'll ever mm, have to like yeah. swallow is yeah. that not everyone's going to like you and actually it is okay because you'll find enough people that do like you the people that don't like you they won't come back and that's fine yeah. and the people that like you they will come back and before you know it you'll have a room full of people who just like you and they know what you're here they know what they're here for they know what it is you do and you know what you're doing and you're not trying to sort of be anything else so that you can convince them that actually you're enough of a thing that they like that they'll like you you just be who you are and they'll like it and that is a big, yeah, that yeah. is a big And there's, there's something about that just in terms of, you know, I have the same thing with books as well, is mm. that, you know, if you'd never had any bad reviews, then you're probably not doing it right. Like, you, yeah, you know, in order sure. to provoke thought or to, you know, to make a point really strongly, mm -hmm. that, of course, there has to be some people that will disagree with that or don't quite get it or yeah. whatever. And that's kind of a, a key part of it, I guess. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Does that ever stop you from writing? I'm just wondering, do you ever get writer's block? Do you ever kind of feel so um do you ever feel uh what's the word like paralyzed by the idea of criticism that it not stops as much you from as I used to, to yeah not as much as i used to mm -hmm. i think that it's it's again like just to talk about black tie i think that is such a personal song which is in some ways quite divisive and there's no way i would have written that like five years ago um just because i would have been um, so I, mean, I have been so concerned with being liked you know I would say mm -hmm. that's been a big yeah. obstacle to yeah. to me um, I don't know fulfilling my potential a lot of the time um, but I think I'm getting better about it and I'm getting better at sort of um, trusting the audience as well you know I think I've done a lot of gigs with Robin Ince and um, he you know whenever I would do shows with him if I was supporting him or stuff um I would always feel the need to do something funny or sing something funny or be funny. And he, night after night, he would say to me, you don't have to do that. You're not here to do that. You know, he, he, and he meant it kindly, you know, he would say to me, like, you are funny, but you, you know, you should get out there and sing Iago. You should sing Baby Blue, sing something, you know, as, as far from comedy as it could possibly be. And trust that this audience full of people are open to hearing what you've got to offer. And if it's, and, and it, if it's good and it is, you know, he, he would say, then um, then trust trust them, you know, to go with it. Um, and I think that's yeah, that's the thing that it's a trick. I think that another another thing that comes with age is just um, learning that don't put people in a box before you've sung to them or whatever. Yeah, you know, like yeah, you can't sure. you can't tell who's going to like what, and um, people don't need to be sort of absolutely spoon-fed everything just because it's a comedy venue and it's a comedy show it doesn't mean that I can't go out there and do a really serious song or a really sad song or a really political song you know give people the choice um, so you've got to go and get a, get a haircut we're going to have to get a haircut, finish yeah. up really shortly um, so let's just talk about um, where people can find you and how they can connect with you and sure. all of that um, gracepetrie.com is where all gigs and music uh, are um, and you can follow me on Twitter if Twitter's your kind of thing uh, at Grace Petrie and I'm on Facebook as well I'm quite recently on Instagram but I don't really know what I'm doing with it <laughs> so uh, you can follow me for um, sporadic bad content on Instagram yeah. if you like while I figure out what I'm doing with it um, and I'm on tour um, again <laughs> going on tour I'm supporting Frank Turner on a UK arena tour which is uh, scary and, and good um, at towards the end of January and the beginning of February I'll be doing cool. arena tour so if you're in London as well I'll just give this a quick plug if you don't mind um, I do a Please show do. called Lefty Christmas um, which this year is on the 23rd of December um, I'll be joined by loads of cool people including Robin Ince and Deborah Francis White from the Guilty Furnace so cool yes and I will see you there I'm, oh, cool. I'm coming so yeah great I'll see okay. you there thanks cool. very much thanks Grace thanks for having me So thanks again to Grace for being on the show. Just to reiterate, Lefty Christmas, Bush Hall in London, December the 23rd. Tickets still available for that. And also the album is called Queer as Folk. Really great record. And um, I'm a big Spotify user, so I mainly stream this stuff on Spotify. Spotify, but you can, of course, buy that on Amazon and in record shops if you still go in one of those. Uh, I haven't been in one of those for years, but I have this thing where I have a sort of uh, guilt of 
using Spotify. So what I tend to do is just make sure I buy the merch when I'm at gigs, and it's just a nice way of supporting musicians and uh, enabling artists to can continue doing what they're doing, which I think is always an important thing. And it, I think we have a duty to do that if we want the world to be more interesting, basically. So go and support Grace's stuff. Um, thanks also to Mark Stedman, my producer for the podcast, and Think Productive, my company, and also the sponsor for the podcast. Um, you can find out more at thinkproductive.com. We run a whole range of productivity workshops uh, to help people to achieve more and stress a lot less. And I also do keynotes as well. So if you want me to come in particularly and run um, something around productivity or around work-life balance, I've been doing some really good keynotes over the last um, few weeks and months, just really enjoyable and really looking to do a lot, a lot more of that in um, 2019 when I'm a bit less head down writing three books basically i've been working on this year i mean productivity ninja was kind of already done so um that doesn't really count and uh, the other two books i'm i'm co-authoring but i think what i'm finding is co-authoring doesn't really mean it takes half the time uh it's still in fact it sometimes takes longer because the collaboration to do that right kind of takes a lot of time anyway so that's me rambling um but yeah next year i want to do a lot more keynotes basically so if you have budget in your organization and you have away days and conferences and things like that then let's put two and two together let me come in and do a keynote for you uh just email me graham at thinkproductive.co.uk and let's chat about all that um if you don't have budget in your organization and you want to come and hear me talk i am doing a free thing for action for happiness uh, we had mark from action for happiness on the podcast a little while ago uh, great organization and they have a big i did a small thing in um, in brighton with, with about sort of 60 70 people uh, it was kind of a, a little small room packed to the rafters, which I was really happy with um, and just had a really great time. And they've booked me to do their big space in London. So I think it's kind of a couple of hundred people and um, big action for happiness thing in London. So it's 21st of January. I don't even know. I'm just kind of riffing here. I don't know, know if that's online yet or not, uh, but it's 21st of January. It's in my diary. So if you're in London and you want to come to that, just put it in yours. That's all you need to do. Uh, we'll try and make sure we mention that close to the time. So um, that's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode. Until then, it's that time of year for me. I feel like this is a very important time of year for self-care. And um, my sad lamp comes on at this time of year and I wrap up really warm and I get my hygge on and all that stuff. So um, stay warm. Uh, stay uh, feeling comfy and uh, try and avoid the lurgy that seems to go around at this time of year as well stay away from the escalators on tubes uh, don't touch anything all that sort of stuff but yeah uh, stay well I'll see you in two weeks time bye for now this podcast is produced by Podient to find out more visit podiantproductions.com